In this episode of The Ownership Economy, Martin and Jawhead connect with Adam Jackson, the co-founder and CEO of Braintrust Network. The conversation begins by discussing how to jumpstart network effects in marketplaces using blockchain technologies and marginal stakeholder incentives. Adam then discusses what decentralization really looks like within a Web3 labor marketplace and offer clues and insights for founders considering building in the space. We hope you enjoy the episode. Adam, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So we like to start these things out by uh, learning a little bit about your background. Can you walk us through your origin story? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm a software engineer by training. I studied computer science at Vanderbilt University. Uh, moved out to the Bay Area right out of graduation uh, when I was kind of a mediocre programmer. So I turned into an entrepreneur and probably a mediocre one at that. Uh, Brain Trust is my fourth venture back company. I, I My first one was an e-commerce uh, local shopping engine acquired by Intuit. Then a uh, automotive marketplace connecting car owners with mechanics that was acquired by Advanced Auto Parts. Uh, 2011. Then I started Doctor on Demand in 2012, which is a large video telemedicine service. Uh, that's now part of Included Health, which hopefully goes public next year. And then uh, I've been in the blockchain space full-time since 2016. Uh, started at, co-founded in a digital asset management firm called Cambrian in 2017, which is still growing and thriving now. Today, my uh, my co-founders are here in the Bay Area. Um, and then uh, we actually wrote an investment thesis for around user-owned networks. And I actually wrote a paper called The Ownership Economy, and it contemplated web-enabled marketplaces that instead of being owned by a corporate entity whose job it was to extract as much value as possible from the participants, it was owned and controlled instead by the participants. And so I initially wrote this in 2018 as a, an investment thesis. There was no one to no you know first of all no lp interest and then second of all no uh no projects really to deploy into so it's the kind of thing that kept me up at night so we we spun it out and that's what became brain trust which is what i work on today cool and so how did you like walk us through the the founding story and how you actually got this off the ground especially given the the lack of clarity in the regulatory environment and so like like, how did you structure things early on? How did you get investors excited about it? Um, what, what were those? What did those first couple of years look? Like? Yeah. So, like I said, it, it the the idea of a user owned network was initially just a concept that I was looking to you know deploy capital into. Um, we I, I decided I wanted to you know go stand something up and prove it could work, and and then you know it, we had to pick a category. So I I was actually really obsessed with last mile delivery. So delivering people, packages, food, tokenizing a network like that, having to be owned by the drivers uh, instead of owned by Uber or Postmates or whoever, um, too hard to do. I, I think today it might still be too hard to do, but certainly in 2018, it was just like, how are you going to explain a token? How are you going to get it in a mobile app? Blah, blah, blah. So we decided to pick uh, the category of connecting knowledge workers, specifically programmers, designers, product managers, uh, you know, IT people with clients that need their services. And, um, you know, these are all digitally procured services, obviously. And, um, and it's a lot easier to explain a token to, you know, a software developer than, you know, someone who, who doesn't work with computers. So that's the category we started with. Um, we, you know, built the initial marketplace software. We built kind of a, a, a test net token, like a fake token, just to see experiment with the, viral loops and um, 
you know, our token is used as an incentive mechanism to reward people for inviting talent and screening talent and inviting clients and onboarding clients and, and all these things that you would hire lots of employees to do, you use the token to incentivize the community to do it. And so we we, we built all that stuff kind of off chain and, and, you know, perfected the loops and then uh, in 2021 minted the token on chain and decentralized the network. Okay. And between when you started and 2021, uh, I don't know how much you can talk about this, just given the regulatory environment. Like, how did you set up the actual structure for the company, and how did you actually get that investment in? Like, yeah. was it a equity investment? Was it a SAFT? Like, like, well, how did it work? Yeah. So we we decided to keep things simple and and just have everybody you know working for tokens. Um, investors, you know, early backers of the project purchased tokens on a SAFT. There was no equity ever sold. Um, the token's a utility token, so it's it's meant to you know, be, you can use it to pay fees on the network. You can use it to procure, um, uh, career advancement. You know, we have a professional network where you can earn tokens and then pay other people to, for career mentorship. Um, so there's, you know, there's a, and then, and then you earn the token by referring and onboarding and screening and all these things. So there's, there's a pretty, you know, sophisticated token economy there, um, that you just can't do with shares of stock, right? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Um, the token is not a profit return system. It's not a dividend mechanism. It doesn't. It doesn't act like an equity. It doesn't smell like an equity. It has real utility in the network. And so, it, it was the regulatory piece was clear back then, and it's relatively clear today for what we do. Um, and so, you know, we sold them on SAFs to accredited investors, right? So, the, you know, the SAFT is a security, right? But when you decentralize the network and mint the token on mainnet. And you have lots of people using it who who I don't own, right? Decentralization means like one company doesn't own it, right? And so, um, you know, it was a, it was a relatively straightforward path. We had a lot of help from Fenwick and West uh, on getting there. But the, you know, to, to answer your question, the way it's set up, there's you know, there's a Swiss entity that helps kind of manage um, part of the treasury uh, grants and that kind of stuff. There's a bunch of Delaware C's. I own one of them called Freelance Labs. We have a couple commercial, like groups of sales guys that own their own companies. But everyone's kind of working for the token, right? Everyone's kind of like trying to make the network more valuable and the token more useful and create more demand for the token. And um, we have an educational node, you know, someone who runs the Brain Trust Academy, uh, multiple developer nodes. So these are all by node, I mean company or entity. That I don't control, right? So if I did like another kind of test for decentralization is like if the founding team disappears, what happens to the network, right? Like if Vitalik disappears, Ethereum is still useful. Um, obviously, Brain Trust is not as big as Ethereum, but you know, if I disappeared, the the, the network would just continue to chug along. So that's uh, that's how we set it up. Okay, cool. I want to come back to that comment later on, but let's start like at the beginning with the cold star problem with the marketplace. Like, what was the the cold star problem here and how did it differ from some of the other ventures that you started well this is one of the i think great reasons to build a tokenized network is cold star problem obviously like you know you, you, you got to build some supply then add demand then more then more then more then more and, and sort of you can't overbuild one side you, you got to keep them measured it's very, marketplaces are very hard to build this is the fourth fourth one i've built myself and i've invested in dozens more um, but the beauty is once they're built and you get the network effects going, they're very, very hard to kill. And the, you know, sort of like the bigger they get, the bigger they get. And that's, that's why I love the business model so much. So the cold start problem with um, Brain Trust was like, okay, 
you know, we started with about a hundred talent. So I just invited like a hundred people I knew who were good developers, designers, product managers, you know, to come moonlight on brand trust as product, as, as part-timers or contractors. Um, and then my partner Gabe and I went out and sold the first 10 clients ourselves. Um, and then we asked the first hundred talent to invite the next 900 and get tokens for that. And then we you know, hired a sales guy and brought in more clients. And then you just sort of like step, step, step. But the the way we grew so quickly, you know, we're we're on track, you know, to do you know 100 million in GSV this year, is um, is using you know a decentralized invitation system, a referral system. So the this the software, the Brain Trust protocol, will pay a percentage of every invoice for for a party for whom you've referred. In our token, so I'll just give you an example. Let's say you know uh, you refer a bunch of great designers in Barcelona, and they get through the screening process, and then they start working for Goldman Sachs, who's a, a active client on Brain Trust. Every time Goldman pays one of those designers that you referred, you're getting a stream of Brain Trust tokens sent to your wallet, and then you can use them. You can redeem them for career advancement services. You could sell them on Coinbase. You can do whatever you want. And so um, that, you know, that mechanism there where literally anyone, like I, three quarters of the business is, is comes from referrals. I don't know any of them. Like I've never met any of those people. Like they don't, let alone employees, right? They're not, obviously not employees. So that, that you know, getting the decentralized incentives right uh, is, is the magic sauce here for, for these networks. And you can earn up to... I think it was when you started the equivalent of ten thousand, right? Now yeah. it's a hundred thousand. Well, now it's a hundred thousand. Okay, per referral, per referral. Wow, incredible! I got to start referring more people. Please do. Um, but uh, how did you do the math to like figure that out and think about it from an enterprise value perspective? Because I imagine in your past ventures you raised a bunch of VC money. You essentially spent that on, you know, traditional marketing channels. Like, what was the what was the process for somebody who's trying to think about this and trying not to burn a bunch of their equity and not, you know, over incentivize folks? Like, how did you tie the marginal contribution of whatever that action was, that referral to, you know, the token and actually predict what the value of the token would be um, in the market, in the marketplace today? Well, it's impossible to predict what the value of the token is. So we did, I mean, I tried, but it, it's just, it's a futile exercise. Um, the, you don't have to, do incur too much brain damage figuring out how much token you should give out because your your cost of the token is zero right it's another magic of you know inventing your own cryptocurrency is like it's not i could do this with cash but i had to raise like i would have had to raise hundreds of millions of dollars right like when you have a token you you create you know a reason for people to earn it and then a reason for people to demand it and then hopefully you you're left with you know a valuable token e economy so the reason to earn it for us is um to you know to redeem career services to participate in the professional network maybe to make money uh the reason to uh, to need it is that you clients have to pay their fees in it so you know every time goldman pays a fee there's brain trust tokens are being uh, uh purchased out of the float and so that you know that creates this kind of token economy that you know hopefully at steady state um, creates a sustainable way to grow the network. Okay, but the token does represent. Does it represent the underlying equity in the company, or like I said, there is no equity. Okay, 
And so like, so, so that's a, that's kind of the wrong framework to think about this. There, there, there there is no equity there's, and there's, there is no one company. There's dozens of companies that are building this. None of them have ever sold equity and the token doesn't, is, is not a claim on profits. It's, it doesn't have a dividend. It doesn't like, it doesn't have any of those properties of a security. It doesn't, it's not a profit return mechanism. So it is, it's a utility token used to power the, the token economy. It's used as an incentive mechanism, a governance. You can vote with it, you know, governance. People change the rules of the network, decide on the roadmap, and then it's used to pay their fees. Okay. And if you're if you were kind of investing in a network like this, how would you think about the investment then? Um, I, you know, like the reason I own Ether is because it's the currency used to power this, you know, global state machine, you know, this, this globe, this decentralized global compute that I think will be the, ultimately the settlement layer for, you know, a new global financial system, marketplaces like ours, where brain trust is an ERC 20 built on Ethereum. So, you know, brain, brain trust needs to consume ETH to operate its smart contracts. So I own ETH because it's a now deflationary currency that I think will power global compute. Uh, one might own brain, like one of our investors said, like I, I would own brain trust because it's a bet that, you know, this could be the decentralized backbone of how labor connects with uh, clients that need their services. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna ask some questions and and if you can't answer them, it's okay. Um, um, they, they, like the regulatory framework in the US is kind of bizarre, right? Like it essentially makes it very, very hard to innovate in this space. Um, I guess like my question is if you're wearing your investor hat and I would imagine when you normally invest in traditional ventures without any of the underlying tokenomics, you expect you're able to do a DCF or a multiples analysis, you're able to value the company on some level. Like how should an investor, like I imagine you invest in a bunch of these entities that have some sort of tokenization like how do you as an investor if we take you out of the framework of, of brain trust think about uh asset appreciation for that investment or a return on your capital or yeah 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 so i mean yeah I'm, I'm an active investor in the space i'm an lp and probably 12 or 13 funds most of them crypto funds i do direct investing all the time myself um so yeah you don't think of it on a dcf multiple standpoint you think about it from uh, supply and demand. So, and, and, and yes, the regulatory framework here is, you know, it's, it's, it's kludgy, you know, it's getting more clear. I think this ripple decision, by the way, adds a shitload of clarity, but we, we can come back to that. Um, so, you know, just because something goes up in value, doesn't make it a security, right? Like I collect wine, the wine goes up in value. If I don't I can drink see it. that behind you. Yeah. I, if I, if I, as long as I don't drink it, it goes up in value. It's not a fucking security, right? It's just a fucking bottle of wine. So um, tokens are not inherently securities. And that's what the judge just said in the Ripple case, right? XRP is not inherently a security. The way they sold it to unaccredited investors, that could have been could have made it a security, right? You can securitize anything, but a token is not inherently a security. So the, to answer your question, though, sorry for the tangent, um, I, look at, I look at the usefulness of the network, right? So let's say, you know, I invest in a, a beverage loyalty program platform that uses a cryptocurrency to reward people for purchasing certain brands and being loyal to certain brands. And then those loyalty tokens are fungible with other brands. And now all of a sudden you have like, it's like MX points, but way more valuable, right? And this, this, this is actually not theoretical. This is a deal I'm actually working on here. Um, 
I think about how big is the market, how much demand uh, could they generate for for this token economy? Um, what business problems are they are they solving? Uh, and and is this founder likely to succeed in this category? Right. So I look for founder market fit and for for the the economics of of the token economy they're proposing and their ability to bring demand in. Right. It's not that different from any other business. Right. Like if 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 you were to pitch me some SaaS business, you know, it's like SaaS for uh, I don't know, you know, beauticians, right? I, I'd be like, okay, how big is the market? And why are you likely to, to tackle it better than someone else? Why hasn't been done before? And what, what's your upsell? How do you get positive net dollar retention? It's not, it's not that different from investing in anything else. Tokenization is just, it's just another sort of tactic for growth. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. What are the other, where, where have you seen tokenization really working besides in fixing this kind of cold start problem? Cause I think you guys kind of nailed it with, Jumpstarting a marketplace. Where else have you seen it be really useful in terms of uh, actually unlocking value within an enterprise? Ethereum. <laughs> um, I, honestly, I, I I I can't name any other projects that have done it. Have, have unlocked a two sided marketplace with the token. Okay, interesting. Okay, and in the cold start, just just to finish up on the cold start problem and setting up the stakeholder incentive programs that you set up. Um, did you like? Did you test these out kind of offline? Did you incentivize people before you put any of this on chain or even ran the flows and, and built kind of the product? Were you essentially trying to incentivize people offline? Like what was that for early stage founders that are thinking about this? What would you guide them um, to do in terms of both thinking about digitizing this and then tokenizing it? Like how, what's the, the product process that you go through internally when thinking about setting up these programs? Yeah, for sure. So we started this in 2018. And, you know, sending an ERC-20 then was uh, probably $15 or $20 worth of gas, you know, depending on, I mean, so for one transfer. So we built the whole thing off chain. And, and, and then we made a, a dummy a kind of fake token that we just tracked in Postgre, right? An offline database. And people did earn them. We spent like a year and a half building the network and people were earning these IOU tokens, right? And it was all off chain. And that's where we iterated and perfected the loops, not perfected, but made them better. They're never perfect. And um, and then in September of 2021, we were finally, we had enough, we had tens of thousands of participants. We were finally ready to, and we basically just copied the whole thing onto Ethereum mainnet, right? And so like thousands of people just got token balances minted right away. We built our own internal wallet system so people didn't have to interact with Ethereum if they didn't want to um, and because of the cost, right? And and now we're, we're actually moving the whole thing to Polygon. So, so the core token will be on Ethereum mainnet, um, but all, all the activity of the network, where we're finally kind of pushing all the Postgres stuff up to Polygon uh, and smart contracts there to like really fully decentralize the tech. And um, so if I were to start today, I would just start on Polygon, right? Like it's it's super cheap. You don't, you don't, you don't have to do this migration from Postgres to Polygon. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it, you can, iterate much more quickly there than you can can on Ethereum mainnet. Okay. Interesting. And it's just, so essentially the cost of smart contracts have just come down dramatically since 2018. And so on Polygon, so, not on Ethereum. On okay. Fair enough. Fair Ethereum enough. is still slow and expensive as ever. Yeah. So on any okay, fair enough. Um okay, cool. So I think like we've got covered kind of the stakeholder incentive that you've set up thus far. I guess one last question on that. When you liquid, when you kind of achieved liquidity by pushing this to mainnet, um, and people could cash out of their tokens, like I remember in the early brain chest paper, you had 
uh, staking programs. You could essentially, uh, it was almost like an advertising model where you could promote yourself as a talent or promote yourself, I think, as a, as a firm. Maybe, maybe it wasn't both ways. But um, were you able to um, create mechanisms within the incentive program that incentivize people to hold on to their token? Or were a lot of people earning the token and then quickly selling it? Like, what have you seen over the course of the, the last few years with, with staking of, a, of kind of a native token? Yeah. So with the the staking features, and to be clear, staking in our network means putting tokens into an escrow or a bond to prove that you're serious about doing the job. It is, it is not lock it into a contract and get interest back. That would make it a security, right? Staking rewards are dividends. So we don't do that. We never have. We never will. Um, the staking kind of escrow system that was in the white paper actually had there was no, no one used it. So we killed it. Like it was just, no one had any interest in it. And so it was, it was like a feature that tested poorly. Um, the, the, well, before you, before you go past that, why, like, what do you think, what was the assumption or the hypothesis that you guys got wrong when you, when you put that together? Um, I think we got wrong. One, it was probably too hard to use. Um, and two, there was more demand than supply back then, right? So this is, think about 2020, 2021, there'd be two two developers apply for a job and then there'd be like 10 un, unfilled jobs, right? right? So like developers didn't need to compete for work. Now okay. we're in the exact opposite situation where you post a job, 55, 75 people apply. So the, the staking bonding feature might work better now, and if someone wants to go build it, you know, best best of luck to them. I, I'm not wasting my time on it. But um, I, I, you know, so I just I, like it was just a feature that you know you try dozens of features, and most of them don't work. But the ones that so we built we built one called the professional network. That one is working, and that's where people you know ju people junior in their career come and they ask for a range of career advice, anything from light touch, like hey, I'm I'm applying for a new job with. Uh, Ford Motor, and I'd love like some coaching on how I do you know do well in the interview process from someone who's worked at Ford for a while or used to, all the way up to like hey that's one that's a one time thing right maybe and I'd, I'd be willing to pay some uh, B trust tokens to for you to help me with that and all the way up to like hey I'm I'm a junior marketer just out of college I want to be a VP marketing someday what are the four subway stops from he between here and there that get me there. I'll join a, a marketing, a CMO mentorship cohort, and I'll pay B Trust tokens to be part of her group. So we have found this, you know, we've unlocked this, this tons of demand and tons of supply on this. And 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 that just launched a month ago. The token piece isn't, isn't quite live yet. We're still implementing that on Polygon. But um, that is the main reason now for people to acquire tokens and hold them, hold on to them so they can advance their career. The other piece is governance, right? So, you know, we just we just had a governance vote last week. We, we changed the fee, the client fees from 10% to 15% um, to, to bring more, uh, you know, uh, more revenue into the network to sustain the network. And um, that one passed overwhelmingly. Token holders vote on that. So if you, you know, if you, if you, you want to hold tokens in the that can vote on the rules for the place you make your living, right? And then, of course, clients have to buy tokens uh, every time they pay fees. Makes sense. Okay, cool. Let's move on to uh, governance. So 
Uh, I honestly don't fully understand decentralization when you have a charismatic leader in a in a early stage startup, right? Like, I don't think this company would have survived without you guys, with, the, the, with you and your co-founder. So, like, what does decentralization actually mean? Because I read I read some of the stuff out of I don't know if it was Andreessen or Variant that you know, if some lawyer put together this paper on like how to properly decentralize it, this is the craziest thing I've ever looked at. Like it's, you know, you have core teams, the core team is often in these early stage startups going totally crazy working. Uh, and the problem is for people who, who you know, are in the space and this weird regulatory environment is if you have a bunch of people that are creating an asset and there's, you know, essentially a, a core group of people, it doesn't pass the Howey test, right? So I've never really understood how Brain Trust did this. Um, and how you would align these different pods, right? Because I understood that you have different product teams that that work almost in parallel, but have different corporate structures. How do you how do you create a product roadmap in that environment? And what happens when when people disagree? <laughs> yeah, this is a great question, and it was something that I it was the most it was one of the most fun parts of the experiment for me because I'm used to centralized control and all that stuff, and I, I'll tell you like what you give up for in control, you get back more in creative problem solving and most importantly, like creative growth from people you don't know and have never met and aren't directing. Right. So uh, I'll, I'll sort of going backwards, like what, it, what does decentralized mean? Decentralized means one entity doesn't fully control it. Right. It, I don't think it's that hard. Right. I mean, we have, five or six that I know of companies that sort of actively, you know, contribute to this network. So one of them or three of them could go away and like, it would be fine. Right. I mean, someone would take their place myself included. So th there, there you have decentralization. Right. Um, and I don't own stock in those companies and they don't own stock in mine. Right. It's, these are worthless Delaware C companies. And so um, like, how do you coordinate a product roadmap? I mean, everyone has their own, right? And as long as the platform's built in a service-oriented architecture way where others can contribute um, permissionlessly, some, sometimes permission, sometimes not permission, then, then it works. And I mean, you get plenty of flubs, right? I mean, we've had like grants that were granted that were total garbage and a waste of time and money. And that happens everywhere, right? I mean, I used to work for any public software company, nine tenths of their dollars are wasted, right? So what, what waste is not new, lack of coordination is not new. What is new is people, you know, growing, referring talent and clients to your network who you've never met before, who you didn't have to give permission to. We have a permissionless referral engine. That to me is really cool, right? And it pays out the token, which didn't cost us anything to create. So, you know, that was the real secret to our success there. And continues to be, you know, we just we we are in this huge pullback where we we're not doing any marketing spend. We had to lay off our marketing people. The referral engine's still cranking, right? So, um, yeah, it's decentralization can be messy, um, but it's it's more fun. It, it, I think it's there, there's just more when when you open beats closed, right? Another way of saying it. Okay. And when you started this decentralization thing, was it was it philosophically because you were there, or was it a solve for the regulatory environment? And would you do things differently if the regulatory environment wasn't so weird in the U.S. right now? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I've always made decisions based on what's best for the vision of the network and then made sure I wasn't stepping in shit regulatory wise. Right. So I, I don't try not to contort too much for regulatory. But the other thing is, like, 
we're not a lot of it, some projects are like securities dressed up as not securities, right? It, specifically, they exist to subvert securities laws, and that that was never the point here, right? Like that, our our, our point was like let's make a network that's owned by its users, and therefore the fees are lower, so you get better talent, more clients, permissionless growth. Like that's super interesting, right? That like that that and none of that is inherently a security. So, um. Now look, if I had to start this today, I don't know, right? I I think, you know, things are, things are in such flux. Um, I I believe like this will all be like much simpler and easier and safe harbored when we get to the other end of this thing. Um, I'm sure we're going to get some some great legislation here. I'm in DC fairly often trying to help however I can there. Um, so I think I think we get to the other side of this thing. But yeah, it, you know, the last year or two have been really rough and maybe prohibitively so. Yeah, makes sense. And do you feel like decentralized governance work? Do people actually care? Like, I mean, what what I think a lot of the research has shown and kind of the evidence is that in a lot of platforms, it's hard to get people to actually participate in governance, right? And yeah. so people don't have time. There's not good proxies. Like, like what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, that we we found that some of the people who make their living on brain trust care about the rules of the network. Other people don't, right? So um I can't like to, to me, like the measure of success isn't the more people participating, the better. I don't give a shit how many people participate. I I, can't, I care about do the rules of the network reflect the will of the people making their living on it, right? And that's always been true here. Like people propose things, they some pass, some fail. And it's, you know, it's the people who it's generally the talent or core team members who are voting and uh, it's working. Yeah. And what have been what have been some surprises that you've seen as part of the governance process? Um let me think. It's been a while. It's been we we just passed that that fee increase, which did not surprise me that the, the talent said the yeah, clients should pay more. Um but uh I don't know, there was one I don't know, somebody was trying to pass actually it was a staking thing. Somebody was trying to pass like, hey. We should be able to lock up brain trust tokens and have staking rewards paid for them. Um, I don't know who proposed it. It passed, but no one implemented it. I mean, I wasn't going to implement it. That would be breaking securities rules. So um, it was surprising to me that someone would propose it. It passed, and then they didn't build it. Yeah, interesting. Or they maybe they just didn't have the capability to do so. Um, right. Um, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the... Overall, the governance piece is something that still needs to be worked out. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of these systems that don't uh, that don't get people involved, um, whether it's cooperatives or or Web three ventures or or whoever that have access to governance rights, um, just because people don't have the time to deal with it or don't even understand it, um, or, or don't it's even too hard. It's, or it's too hard, right? Um, particularly in Web three. Um, okay, so now you guys are growing. Um, you figured out uh, a certain element of decentralization. You figured out tokenization and a cold start problem. You've got a governance layer in place that, you know, whether or not people use it, if they want to use it, they have some governance rights. Um, what are the challenges to growth now? Um, you know, you you mentioned in a recent one of your own podcasts that you had to lay off. I think it was like forty percent of a of the full time staff. Um, like, where, where what's the roadmap from here? Yeah, I mean, we 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 did the riff because the macro global uh, economic, you know, eighty percent of our clients are on hiring freeze, right? So 
what are you going to do? Keep incinerating money? It's like you, you can't spend Walmart out of a hiring freeze, right? If Walmart says they're not using brain trust, they're not using brain trust, right? And they'll start using brain trust when we get out of a recession and when the Fed starts cutting rates and when people start spending money in their stores again, right? Like that's the story, Like right? That's how the economy works. If, if you're paying expensive marketing people and running expensive marketing campaigns when your customers aren't buying, you're a fucking idiot. You're wasting money. So, I mean, I I just did what any good CEO would do, and just you know, but how, does the how does that What's work? How does that work? How does that work with the decentralization? But it's just like, one node. There's we my node runs marketing, so I stopped spending on marketing. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now the um, other developer nodes do whatever they want, right? I mean, so uh, you know, we're still cranking away on engineering. Yeah. Um, so we just stop stop spending on money on marketing and, and some of the sales activities. Um, okay, so when you're, when you're in this environment where you're now kind of, I, I mean, I imagine you guys are like, I don't know if you can talk about this. Are, I mean, are you profitable yet? Are you cash flow break even? Are you guys still working towards that? Can you yeah, talk? The, yeah, the, the, the node is financially, my node is financially break even. Okay. Um, I don't know about the other ones. Okay. And and so let's say that the network needs to do it. Like, what does a secondary look like, right? Like, how do you guys think about raising additional capital? Because you have this- We, we never will. We, we would never raise additional capital. If we did, it would be selling tokens out of our treasury, uh, right? our allocation. Yeah, our treasury. Okay. Uh, Interesting. But I have no intention of doing that. Because you think it's worth a lot or because you don't want the, like, because you don't want the additional- because I don't need the capital. I've already raised too much money. And um, yeah, that and we don't need it. Okay. Um, from what you've seen in other projects, like when an entity has decentralized, it's got kind of a token cap table or it's got a tokenized kind of network and it needs to raise additional cap capital. What have you seen as the process? People sell there- Yeah, these, these sell treasury tokens. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Cool. Okay. And so for you, like growing at this point, um, you're not going to raise more capital. The goal here is, is to continue to grow the network. You've got the professional network in place that's starting to work well. Um, how do you think about exit and liquidity? And and is that different from how you've thought about other ventures? Yeah. I mean, there, there is no exit, right? Like you can't, you can't acquire a decentralized network, right? Like and liquidity is is whatever it is on Coinbase. You can go check anytime, twenty four seven, what the liquidity is, right? And we we have no control over it. Um, we don't yeah you know, we don't sell tokens. We're not market makers. We're not involved in any of that stuff. We just we just you know run our part of the network. And do you think that you'll hold your tokens forever? I mean, will will you sell your shares of Apple someday? I mean, like, I, I don't, well, like, I think it's it's, it's a it's a it's a personal yeah. financial decision, right? I, why would I answer that? Well, I'm more yeah, I'm more I'm more thinking about it from like how like you have so much experience as both an operator and an investor in these ecosystems, right? And normally investors go through like if you're I mean when you I'm assuming you're an LP in these funds, you're thinking okay, there's a ten year lockup. I'm going to get liquidity over this date. Right. And these founders that have less experience, they haven't, they haven't started four ventures. Like, how do you think they should think about the realities of liquidity if they're going to tokenize a network? Right. Because you're putting in the same amount of work, right? These tokens are technically your equity. I mean, you're getting, you're getting kind of this, 
you're getting an allocation of, of the uh, spend uh, from the clients to cover your cost of development or to, cost of, to cover the cost of marketing. But at the same time, I'm sure this was super hard. Five years of work, you know, same amount of work that you had to put into your past ventures, I would imagine, if not more, because you have to pitch people on this whole new crazy idea, right? So for a founder that's going through this the first time and thinking, okay, I want to use these these marginal stakeholder incentives. I want to decentralize because I believe in kind of the power of shared ownership and governance for, for whatever reasons, either because I think it's going to drive a, a higher viral networking effect or because I believe in it philosophically. Like, how should those founders think about liquidity? And like, for those that don't have, haven't had three successful exits and maybe they need to have that liquidity to, to buy their first house or whatever it is. I would say don't count on it. Okay. I mean, here, here, here's, I think the fallacy a lot of people in this space bought into was, just because you have a token that trades two or three years into your journey, you have liquidity all of a sudden. None of these tokens have any liquidity. Unless you're Bitcoin, Solana, Ethereum, or Filecoin or whatever. But unless you're one of the top tens, there you don't have any liquidity, right? You you sell the price tanks. And so like that's the liquidity myth of this space. <laughs> and so um if you're starting this to flip a token two years in. It's not going to work. Don't bother. Um, you need to build a lasting, sustainable, large, and hopefully eventually a highly liquid uh, network where there's lots of organic demand, and what you're doing is creating real value in the economy. And then at, at some point, you know, you may achieve that. Brain trust certainly is not there yet. Okay, interesting. And at Cambrian, how do you think? Do you think about it any differently? Oh yeah, Cambrian only plays with top ten assets. Okay, and play so by more- plays with. I mean, they have a you know, they have a systematic rules-based uh, trading system that, you know, generates uh, better returns than just buying and holding the underlying asset, but they only do so with, you know, highly liquid assets, um, you know, and traded traded on, um, you know, with counter with regulated counterparties in the U.S. Okay, cool. Versus your other ventures, right, with Braintrust, like, are there any other things that were surprising to you um, over the past five years where if you're a founder and you're thinking about using these tools that that you would say, look, this is not something that it was intuitive when I started out, but but this is something that every founder should know about operating in this kind of this, this new space with um, Web3 and decentralization. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been it's an incredible adventure. I mean, I've, I've learned so much um, about market structures and market dynamics and you know, how institutional investors think differently than family offices, than VCs, than hedge funds, like that all has been just an incredible learning experience. Um, the The whole reason I started this was because the big idea was that I have and still had and still have is that user-owned networks will grow faster and become more valuable than corporate-owned networks. And that's the bit, that's what I get out of bed every day for. It's definitely not for the money, right? <laughs> not making any money doing this. And that's been proven true at Brain Trust on a small level, right? Only $100 million of, of annual run rate so far, but it's growing. I think we can 10X this thing without you know raising any more money or adding it, it, a few more employees. I think this, this network can churn billions of GSV. GSV for us, gross service value, that's clients hiring talent. Um, so like I'm sticking to that vision. I'm, I'm really... Um, obsessed by it. I would like the the tooling, the infrastructure, the UI in this space is still a joke. You're going to have to build most of it yourself. When clients 
every time a client on Braintrust pays uh, a, a network fee, that money is going to buy Braintrust tokens. We have obfuscated all of that from the clients. We have smart contracts and other software layers. So Nike or Nestle or Goldman doesn't have to know about crypto or care about tokens. I would give that advice to anyone starting in this space. If you're asking someone to install MetaMask, it's not going to work. If you're building a mainstream application, right? I don't consider Uniswap to be a mainstream application. I love it and it's cool, but it will never ever be mainstream as long as they require people to use something like MetaMask. Uh, Coinbase is a mainstream application, right? Anyone can use it. It's super, super easy. So we've always kind of followed the Coinbase uh, you know, way of building UX. Not, no knock on any of the, the you know, on-chain applications like Uniswap. I love those. I invest in them. I'm, I'm a daily user of them. But if you're going to build something mainstream, you, 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 you can't expect users to understand that stuff. Makes sense. And if you were a regulator, right, and you wanted to see, because the regulatory environment in the U.S. is weird because both conservatives and, and liberals want more broad-based ownership, right? It's like the one, it's one issue that everyone agrees on. You pull on this, you ask, you ask politicians on it, everyone believes in this concept that people should own the things that they contribute to, right? Um, and so if you were a regulator, you're a policymaker, like what are, how would you establish a framework to encourage more of this and make it easier both for entrepreneurs and for investors? Yeah, um, I don't agree with that. I, th I think the left is actually very anti anything having to do with crypto. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren and, and others uh, have made that very clear. Um, but to your, you know, let, let's, let's assume. But, but they're really into employee ownership, right? So they're, so like the crypto space just might be too confusing to them. But just the, ownership, but not via crypto, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think that, but I think that's more a function of the fact that no one understands this stuff, right? And so. Um, yeah, Gensler understands it. He used to teach it at MIT. Right. He's just a zealot. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we can hide behind that anymore. The, the, these people aren't as dumb as we think they are. Um, they understand it just fine. They, the one side wants it banned. Right. And they've been very clear about that. Um, and so, look, but to answer your question, I, I mean, I look, I, I've, you know, looked at and helped out on the, the Lummis Gillibrand bill that it's just common sense. Right. It's like those two ladies are are just common sense people that they're both very, very smart and, and amazingly couldn't agree on anything else in the world except this, right? I'm so inspired by the two of them for, for coming together on this because they could not be more ideologically separated. But, you know, it's like, yeah, have stable coins, one, one back, common sense, right? Um, if something, you know, is clearly a security, then it's a that's SEC. If something is looks weird and different, like we've never seen before, like a utility token or a brain trust token that you know, you earn by referring and use to get career help, then that's not a security. Here's a different framework for it, right? It's just easy shit. This is all on the table. We just need the regulators to stop overreaching and, and for this stuff to make its way through, through both houses of Congress. Makes sense. And I think now that there's been so many of these decisions or so many of these actions over the past six months, it seems like Congress will pick this up again. It seems like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic, especially after this uh, this this ripple, you know, this the submarine judgment and ripple, which of course can and probably will be appealed, blah blah blah. But you just had a federal judge say tokens are not inherently securities, just like barrels of oil are not, just like bottles of wine and golf clubs and beanie babies are not inherently securities. You can securitize them if you do X, Y, and Z, but you know it, it's just common. It's a smart judgment, right? It's just kind of clarity we've needed. Makes a lot of sense. Well, I really appreciate your time and coming on. Um, where should people follow you if they want to stay on top of your work? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, go to braintrust.com. That's where you can sign up for the network, start referring or get a job or post a job. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Adam Jackson SF. Uh, and then I do a podcast every couple of weeks, just like 10, 15 minutes telling all the gory stories and crazy, scary things and all the other bullshit involved in, you know, being an entrepreneur. And that's, uh, that's called the Adam Jackson show on, uh, iTunes and Spotify and YouTube. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Adam. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the ownership economy. Don't forget to like, and subscribe.